Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Nora Gallagher, author of Moonlight Sonata at the Mayo Clinic. Um, she writes, she's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. Um, Nora's new book has been described as an honest portrait of illness and the way it changes life and faith. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Nora. Thank you, Catherine. Nice to be here. Well, when I, uh, you know, in reading your book, of course, I'm thinking about my own life experiences, and I, I think that a life-threatening illness, which didn't happen to me, but happened to my father, was kind of that turning point of before and after uh, when you go into another country. I was, yes. Yeah, I was 15 years old, and I was at a debating tournament at Dartmouth College and called my parents to say I had gotten there safely, and my mother tells me your father's had a massive heart attack. Oh. And, um, and uh, you know, I, they didn't know whether he was going to live or die. Well, he lived, but life after that changed considerably so yes. yeah so let's that's my story let's start with yours well I, I think I'm glad you told your story um, the book starts with a little excerpt from a poem um, that goes about suffering they were never wrong the old masters how well they understood how it takes place when well while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along and I think that's the critical point about a serious illness is that it takes place while other people are going on with their lives, just eating lunch or walking along. What, what happened to me was I noticed a blur at the edge of my right eye, and I went to my ophthalmologist, and he said I had an inflamed optic nerve, and if I didn't get immediate treatment, I would go blind. So as I walked from his office to the emergency room, I noticed, of course, other people on the street. And I felt as if a glass wall had slid between me and them, that that they were obliviously going on with their lives, and I had suddenly shifted dramatically into this other place. As you're describing this, Nora, I was just thinking about a time... And I hadn't thought about this in a while, but in second grade, after my grandmother died, this is a seven-year-old, went back to school after the funeral the next day or a couple days, yeah. and looking around and thinking, do these, do, do they know my grandmother died? Yeah. And it was that, you know, you're describing that glass wall, because I'm different now. Yeah. I mean, that's a kid, you know, but... Um, Yes, I, I, I absolutely. I'm so glad you told that story. I think that it's true for people uh, who suffer the loss of a of a loved family member. It's it's true. A man reminded me at a reading in New York that it's true when you lose your job that you are suddenly in a world where everyone's going forward and you're not. But it's just your perception, right? I mean, you were diagnosed, okay, you have this blur in your eye, and suddenly it's like if you don't do something about it, you're going to be blind. Right. But there are other people out there beyond that glass wall who are suffering the same, or the same thing. You know what I'm saying? But your perception is that they're not, that you're alone. 
Yes, I think that's actually a, a critical piece of the of the book is that I finally understood that there are that vulnerability is what we share. Um, it's it sounds almost cliched, but it becomes very clear when you're when you are so vulnerable or when you're in touch with your own vulnerability that um, that's the connecting thing between human beings. Um, so, of course, as we are more willing to be open about our vulnerabilities, the more we'll know that we're not living in a separate, isolated country. And I think that's truer today, don't you? I mean, you, people get diagnosed, I mean, with all kinds of illnesses. They, they go online, they blog about it, they talk about it. Yes. Um, they're not ashamed, you know, all of those, all of that. Yes, I think you, you can certainly say that about cancer, and I think it's you know it used to be such a dark secret, and I think it's it's very good that people can be very open about it. I think the one thing I say in in my book is that there is a kind of um, and it sort of constellates in cancer a kind of you're we're going to beat this, it's a battle, um, I'm going to win, um, sort of you see it in the in the in the ads for some medical centers. And while I think that's fine for some, I mean, whoever, however you want to deal with illness is, is, is acceptable to me, I also think there's a place for knowing that it's not so much a battle. It is a kind of acceptance. Um, and that doesn't mean that you accept being sick forever, but that you accept a kind of essential vulnerability uh, and what it can teach you rather than necessarily a big, you know, I'm going to overcome everything and go back to being exactly the way I was before. Um, I think there's something to be learned in this country that would that informs my life now. See, I think that's what's exceptional about your book and your experience, because I've thought about that. I've had so many people in my life, as, as most people have, who are particularly cancer, that it, there's this aggressive kind of, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to battle it, and I'm going to go back to the way it was before, as you right. say, and you can't, because that's over. You're never going to go back to the way it was before, so you're always kind of in a situation trying to get to a place you can't get to, whereas you're saying, let's accept this, go ahead. Better things may happen. Maybe they won't, maybe they will, but it's going to be different. Yes, thank you for putting it that way. It's very, that's a very smart way to put it. I think that it's very much the way you, you, you now know that something will happen to you. Uh, I think before um, this happened to me, I was like everyone else or like most people. Um, I assumed that nothing would happen to me, that other people got sick and other people died, and I, there would be an exception in my case. Uh, and so when it did happen, it was an incredible shock. And my whole life had been organized about being very busy and very productive. And uh, I had missed, I had sort of passed through life, if you know what I mean, uh, with tremendous speed. And now, well, I can't say I do this all the time, certainly, now I'm much more aware of the incredible importance of the present and what I say in the book, the sort of generic term, but the information in the present. How would you, I want to get back to actually that moment, because I, I don't want to skip over that, you know, the moment when you were diagnosed and then you're walking to the emergency room, looking at that 
glass or that veil that has suddenly come between you and everyone else. Because I think it's helpful to understand what the process was for you after that. I mean, you're on your way. You you suddenly received this diagnosis, but you had difficulty with your eyes before, right? Or you, yes, I had an yeah. autoimmune disorder that was affecting my right eye uh, called uveitis, and they never found an underlying cause. Um, as it turns out, they probably didn't quite do enough to discover what it was because what finally what they finally diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, was the was that there had been an underlying cause all the way along. And this probably caused the inflammation in the optic nerve as well. You're a person who's like, as you describe yourself, very competent. You handle things well. You were on a, a not exactly a fast track, but um, is, would you say the way in which you managed your illness is was... I was I was helpful to you in terms of the kind of person you were but before you were diagnosed I'm saying because you were competent because you were used to being a problem solver you know you're bright you're successful was that helpful or was that a detriment Well I think that's a a good question it was both I I was a you know a middle class professional like all of us and I um I think that I attacked this problem so to speak with the same energy that I had for um, for writing an article or, or, or being a journalist. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I didn't have the energy. I was really sick. Uh, I could barely think at all. So while I did end up um, working hard to find the diagnosis and and making my way to the Mayo Clinic, I had to have help. I had to ask my husband for help. I had to ask my friends for help. I had to ask for help in in many different situations. And that was a teacher for me, that I I could not do this by myself. It was uh, impossible at that point. So it was humbling. Very humbling. And, and it be, made me aware of this vulnerability vulnerability that connects us that, and I don't mean that in a kind of touchy-feely way, I mean it as the reality of our lives. How, you're talking about not being able to manage it on your own, and I'm thinking about so many people who don't necessarily have others, you know, loved ones or friends or whomever, especially older people, to help them get through that. Um, to you know, it was a humbling experience for you to have to ask your husband and other people to help you, and saying that you couldn't handle it on your own. What do people do who don't have anybody? How do they? I mean, do you have any? It's a really yes. good question. I, I yes. think one of the things I can say for all of us who are you know sort of still in the healthy world um, that it's very critical to understand that part of the reason we ignore people who are very elderly or sick uh, that we tend to pass them by is because we're afraid of their condition. Um, I suddenly understood that some of the people around me who were giving me advice. Uh, that, that were not helpful. They were trying to be helpful, but they weren't helpful. I suddenly realized that they weren't helpful because they were so afraid that this would happen to them or something similar would happen to them that they couldn't enter into the world I was living in, that they reinforced that glass wall between me and them. As a social worker, I'd like you to really tell us what what is it that they did because 
mm-hmm. that wasn't helpful, and they thought they were being helpful because they really kind of hands off or ha- arms oh, length. Yeah, well, they I'll, don't... I'll, I'll give you a good example yeah. of uh, a friend from the East Coast uh, who had sort of known known kind of back in the back of his mind that my grandmother had committed suicide. Um, she was grieving the loss of her husband. She was alone. Um, she wasn't getting along with my mother. And I think really at a very spur of the moment, thing took an overdose of sleeping pills. So we're ta- I'm talking to this man who has this information, and he said to me, well, we could say that an autoimmune disorder is sort of like a, a suicidal thing, wouldn't you say? And I thought, oh. Yeah. What is <laughs> so he saying? That is... Not helpful to me. Um, and I realized, that's when I fully realized that he was just kind of desperately trying to find a cause and an effect um, that would satisfy our need for that. Um, and that it would also make sure that it didn't happen to him because his grandmother hadn't committed suicide. Uh, what did you of, say to him? I, I said, you... oh, I, I, I had nothing to say. I, I sort of was so completely taken aback that I kind of said, uh-huh, <laughs> and, and, you know, hung up as soon as I could. Um, but he did me a service in the sense that I really got it, that because we desperately want to have cause and effect and we desperately believe deep in our hearts that disaster is contagious, um, we, we cannot accept that this will happen to us. So one of the things we can do with people who are very sick or people who are old is admit that it will happen to us, that we will get old, that we will be frail, um, that we're not going to be the way we are right now forever. And the more we accept that in ourselves, I think it really opens us to being much more of a, a companion to those who are in that state. And I think you use your energy in a good way for all of us who are aging or sick or a variation. We're all aging, variations of that. If you really accept that, and I think I get this from your book as well, if you accept the truth, you know, this is, this is who I am, these are my limitations, this is what I was, you know, in your case, what you were diagnosed with, this is what I'm going to do, it's much easier to navigate the waters if you're doing them truthfully rather than kind of putting, pretending that uh, things are different than they are, or that you're, I don't know if that's clear, but I yes. think that, yeah. Yes. No, I, I think that's completely clear. I was, um, there's also a whole world of people that you really experience when you go to Mayo, for example, a world of people who are very ill, who, who again, exhibit this kind of vulnerability, and it's it's a kind of strength that I think is important for all of us to take a look at. I was coming out of a bronchoscopy at um, at Mayo, and um, my I had to be in a wheelchair. My husband had to take me in a wheelchair from the surgery unit to the to the hotel where we were across the street. And as I was leaving that unit, I um, saw a little girl ahead of me wheeling herself in a wheelchair. Uh, and I had always sort of looked at people in wheelchairs with a kind of uh, shyness and discomfort and awkwardness. I had never known exactly how to so-called treat people in wheelchairs. But there I was in a wheelchair. And so I came alongside her and I just kind of looked over and, and said hi. 
And she looked back in this kind of very strong, alive face and said, hi. <laughs> and and there we were, you know, with this uh, with this cord of vulnerability between us. And and I think that that taught me a great deal about how vulnerability is more than 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 a kind of weakness. It's uh, it's a strength. Yeah, and it's a human condition. It is our it, human. It condition. is our human condition. It is. And it is. Nora, what about at the hospital though? What let, let's kind of share some of that with our with the audit with our listeners because physicians, healthcare professionals, the hospital protocol itself. How is it helpful to you, and how is it not helpful? I mean, in terms of your di- what you had to deal with. Yeah. Well, I think you know part of the reason you're in another country when you're sick is that you're you're ensnared in the in the American medical system, and it's uh, you know as you say it has its ups and its downs. I I think that. Part of the reason people have so much, so many problems in hospitals with medical staff is that they too are caught in this feeling of it's not going to happen to them. And they're surrounded by people for whom it, it has happened. So I think that for doctors particularly and for staff, uh, they're kind of skating along the edge of this feeling that it's not going to happen to them, it is going to happen to them. And it depends on how good they are at accepting this situation as to how they'll deal with you. Um, I had some very bad experiences that I think all people have, um, particularly with specialists. I I think you probably know that specialists outnumber internal medicine doctors by about, I think it's almost eight to one at this point. And I thought that specialists were there to solve the case. and so the first specialist I went to down in Los Angeles uh, instead was very vague, said, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. I went through um, about 45 minutes of exam from his residence. Uh, I finally understood later, and a doctor confirmed this, that really teaching hospitals are there for the doctors and the students, not for the patients. Um, further, that's a tough lesson to learn. Some yes. of our best medical centers, aren't they? Teaching hospitals. I'm thinking about all the ones like Mass General, Columbia Presbyterian. Yeah. Right? They're all at least on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, Mayo Clinic uh, again exemplifies the kind of treatment of patients that we should all that should be present in every every facility. Uh, when they say the patient comes first, which is usually um, probably not true, even though it's you know in a sign on the walls and other hospitals, uh, it's really true at Mayo. Um, they are always trying to figure out ways to put the patient first. They are always polite. The doctors are specific. I think that's one of the things I really thought about Mayo that impressed me was that you don't get a vague answer from a doctor, you get a very specific answer from both doctors and staff. For example, if someone's late, the staff will say, the doctor is in the research lab at this moment. I've just texted him. He will be here in five minutes. Um, that, that's an entirely different attitude than most of the attitudes in, in, in medical facilities. Uh, well, I think one of the reasons they and maybe this is what you're saying, they dismiss the patient. I mean, really yeah. dismiss your feelings and, and, you know, if you're not told that it's almost like 
treating you like a child. How grown-ups, adults dismiss children when they ask a question. You know, we don't really need to tell them the truth because for whatever reasons we decide. It's kind of that that same kind of a, can be that same kind of a relationship, but you're saying not so at the Mayo Clinic. Yes, I think that's true. And I I think that's, I was just experiencing it yesterday in in a clinic in Los Angeles. The, the the condescension that's of almost a normal state, and I can't. I think part of it is just that they know, you know, they've gone to medical school and they know a lot. It's very difficult for them, for doctors in particular, and for medical staff, to cope with someone who is experiencing the symptoms but who doesn't have the same medical information. Uh, we all have more medical information than we used to because of the internet, but we don't have the full medical, you know, education that a doctor does, for example, and I think it's very difficult for them to figure out how how to use that education in a way that's helpful to you and not be condescending. Well, here's I want to interrupt because I'm thinking as you're describing doctors mm-hmm. thinking that they have or they do more medical information. Mm-hmm. I haven't had the I've had similar experiences as you, but I'm thinking about like uh Lawyers, attorneys, they yes. don't seem to take on that attitude in the same way, and I'm wondering oh. why. Uh, and they have all the legal information, whatever you're going through with them, whether it's a divorce or a lawsuit, but they, that kind of condescension, condescension, as you're describing, in the medical community, I don't think is the same, and I'm not sure why in the legal community. That's a very, that's a very interesting uh, point. I, ha- I had not thought of that, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure what it is. It's, there's also a tremendous distancing that goes on in medicine because of the, the tremendous scientific approach that everything has to be tests. Um, you know, I went through an enormous number of tests um, that weren't necessary, of course, like everyone else, because um, the need for verification, um, for a kind of scientific verification rather than uh, the the old practice of medicine, which was, you know, you listen to the patient, you you think about it together, you intuitively try to figure out what's going on. Um, I'm grateful for modern, efficient medicine, but I don't, um, but I saw again at the Mayo Clinic that there are ways to balance that with a very close attention to what the patient is telling you about their symptoms. In my case, my tests were normal. So they had to pay attention to my symptoms. Um, and after a while, they began to see that I was a person who paid attention to my symptoms and could describe them. Uh, and I think that helped them understand what they were dealing with. So you had to prove yourself. <laughs> exactly. You were the good patient. You were the smart patient. You're the patient who was able to understand, because some patients may have more difficulty than others. Yes. Um, we have to say goodbye. This is. I, I want to... Um, I could continue talking with you. Obviously, I have a lot more questions, but it's important that people read your book. And the title of the book is Moonlight Sonata at the Mayo Clinic, and you can buy it on, I assume, online bookstores everywhere. But, Nora, what website can listeners go to if they want more information about you and the book? Um, My website is noragallagher.org, all one word. And um, you can certainly go to um, my publisher, Knopf, has a lot of information about the book. That's K-N-O-P-A-P-F. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. 
we are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, I'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Kathleen Fox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me now is Joyce Roche. She's the author of The Empress Has No Clothes, Conquering Self-Doubt to Embrace Success. Uh, Joyce is a, has been called and is a trailblazer in the corporate world, and that's been for 25 years. Uh, she was Avon's first African-American female vice president, and the former CEO of the National Nonprofit Girls, Inc. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Joyce. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm looking forward to it. Please well, to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So are many of my friends looking forward to it because I think many of us as women um, suffer from the imposter syndrome when successful people feel like frauds. So, you know, reading your bio and all that you've achieved and you've been doing this for a lifetime and my first question is, I guess, do you still feel like an imposter? <laughs> well, I've learned, actually, to quiet that voice. But uh, I, I was just doing an event yesterday, and someone asked me the question, well, you know, do you get over it? And I said, not really. You learn how to quiet it. You learn how to, you know, have that confidence in yourself. But when, again, if if faced with a new and different kind of opportunity, a place I haven't been before, the voice will start. But I do know how to turn it off pretty quickly and how to start to to calm any self-doubt and begin to internally get control of the situation. Define the imposter syndrome in detail for us. Sure. Uh, The way I describe it is that it's a a fear and self-doubt that causes people to question their abilities even in the face of success and that you feel that you have to constantly 
prove uh, that you deserve to be in the position uh, or role of responsibility that you have and, and, and maybe fear that um, you won't be able to be as, um, as effective in these new places you're going to. So that's basically how I define it. Who's the most vulnerable? Who are the people who are the most vulnerable or individuals to, uh-huh. yeah, to, um, su- I, do I use the word suffering? Or the, um... Well, I guess it is suffering with these feelings, yeah. Well, what I observed, and again, this was, uh, Catherine, this was research done um, in 1978 by two psychotherapists, Dr. Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. I didn't know there was such a term as the imposter. They called it the imposter phenomena, and then ultimately it evolved to the imposter syndrome. But I had described these feelings, and someone told me in another book, and someone told me that that's what I was describing. But as I started to, when I decided to do The Empress Has No Clothes, I I then um, started to talk to other people and realized that what happens is that it tends to, these feelings tend to come up whenever you find yourself or a person finds themselves in a situation where they are different from the majority of the people that they are either working with, engaging with, or competing against. So, for example, a woman who is in a predominantly male environment, this will be a trigger for many women in terms of this self-doubt, this fear of failure, this, this need to feel that I've got to prove that I can, in fact, compete in this in this different kind of group a person of color in a majority environment again will have those feelings many will have those feelings someone who grew up in um, limited economic environments would have these feelings uh, because again the concern is that I'm now competing or engaging with people who grew up where they're um, their parents probably taught them about the stock market. They talked about it over breakfast or over dinner. Uh, they probably went to better schools. Um, they, they, they know more about the social graces than, than I kind of grew up with. So that kind of thing. But I was talking to a group of um, second-year MBA students uh, at Tufts, and a young man said to me, well, what about being gay in a straight environment? Again, different from the majority of the people you're engaged with. I said, absolutely, that can be a trigger. So that's really, if you think about it in that holistic way, um, you kind of get a sense of why certain groups tend to have, you have a, a larger majority of the people have that trigger. But I found a lot of men who have it as well, so it's not just women. Yeah, and I was thinking, of, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about how I grew up as a uh, Jewish woman in a very in a small town where everybody was Christian, and yeah. I was always the only Jewish person in the class, and so mm-hmm. there was this feeling, you know, that you're describing, and, I, and my father was always saying to me, well, you have to prove yourself, you have to be better, mm-hmm. Than, mm-hmm. Because, uh, because people are going to look at you because of your religious background in a different way, and so, uh, you know, I'm identifying with a lot of, you know, what you're saying, but... Yes, absolutely. That's a perfect example where, you know, you, you, you are internally questioning whether the, the people that you are, um, um, working, you know, in, you, when you were in school engaging with on a regular basis, whether 
you know, because you, whether you'll fit and therefore, in a sense, you are concerned that they're questioning just where, how good are you? You know, are, you know, do you have the, the intellectual capacity to, to, you know, to meet the same level of, um, uh, educational attainment as, as maybe their more familiar peers might be able to do. So there are a lot of, you know, things that, and these, remember, this is internal doubt that's going on. It, it's like we are projecting out to this group that is, that is different from us what we think they may be thinking about us and, and the kinds of things they probably are questioning about us. So therefore, we feel we've got to counter it by proving that we can do whatever this thing is. And how do we do that? What are some of the symptoms, the behavioral symptoms of that? You know, how can we identify it that we are sure. suffering from the, I keep saying suffering from the imposter <laughs> syndrome. Well, it's not a good thing. Well, suffering um, or dealing with it, one or the other. With. Dealing well, the, with is much better, yeah. Yeah, the external signs are, let's say from a, in a professional standpoint, would be working long hours, feeling that you've got to over-prepare for every, everything, stress, and sometimes compromising personal life, you know, being so singularly focused that everything else in your life takes, takes back seat. Uh, internally, the signs would be this doubt and fear, especially, you know, when presented with new opportunities like a promotion or whatever it might be, um, which raises the fear and concerns about fitting in. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's like the, the outward signs, uh, which, which are those things that, you know, that because you're constantly proving, so you're driving to shows and you feel that, in fact, you've got to work harder. You've got to over-prepare. You can't risk stumbling. And so that's really a lot of the outward signs. So perfectionism, to be a, a workaholic. Yeah, yeah, to a great degree it is. Uh, I remember early in, in my career, um, there weren't a lot of women uh, at Avon when I started in the marketing area. And so uh, I think most of us felt like, in fact, that the, you know, we were different from the men who were the majority, and, and that everything that we did, we felt had to be perfect. That, you know, even if we were in, and I often talk about this, in a meeting, you know, I remember early in my career, I would sit back in a meeting and not, you know, and we would be discussing, there would be this discussion around um, an issue or a strategy, and I would sit back and think about a, an answer that I thought made sense, but I was so afraid until that it had to be perfect before I let it out of my mouth, that it had to have, you know, I had every I dot and every T crossed, and then I would get ready to say it, but someone, usually a man, would say what I had been thinking five or ten minutes before. Um, Luckily, I did start to learn that lesson and realize that, you know, my concern about not speaking up for fear of it being off base or not sounding smart or whatever the reason was, that I was in a sense giving credence to it by not speaking up because then, you know, the question was, is she very smart? Does she know what's going on? So I realized I had to start to take the risk to speak up, but it didn't cause me to then start to relax. There was still this internal churn going on 
about the fact that, you know, is it going to be okay? Is it going to be the right thing that I'm saying? So Joy, I think so it's how that. Did you, so at what point, I mean, you became aware of it, I assume, early on. I'm sitting here with all these men, and I, they're saying what I have to say, they end up saying, but uh-huh. I've thought about it before they even said it. Okay, so at what point did you say, now, two things, how... I've got to do, I have to do something about it. And number two, how did you do something about it emotionally? You know, from a social worker's sure. point of view, I want to know, like, how did you overcome it? How did you finally say, okay, I'm not doing this. I have something to say and I'm going to say it. Yeah. Well, that, that particular situation, I learned pretty early. And as I said, because I realize that I'm different you know, there are not that many women in this room. And if I don't speak up, then I'm not, you know, I'm in a sense suggesting to the majority of the people that are in this room that I really don't know what's going on. So that that lesson was a pretty quick lesson to learn. But it did not, it didn't quiet these, this fear, this, this um, self-doubt that I had. And actually, it was later in my career, um, actually when I was about to be promoted to vice president, um, because I kept my head down, worked hard, achieved, you know, kept getting promoted, promoted, promoted. And uh, at that point where I had uh, been told I was in line, you know, to, to be I was well positioned for the next officer role. When it's when one came open, it began to be that there was going to be a male. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, seemingly was was being considered, and I wasn't sure that I was being considered. So I had to, in a sense, speak up and talk about what I had accomplished, what I had achieved, and understand why maybe there was not a decision point there. So it was really the first time that I outwardly and publicly acknowledged my accomplishments, my achievements, the, the work I had done, and why I should be in consideration for this vice president's role. Now, uh, it ultimately happened that I was promoted to vice president, but immediately when it happened, because it was, as you said, I was the first African-American female vice president at Avon, um, the public you know, acknowledgement of that was a lot of news, and it's and then that just triggered even higher levels of concern. But what I started to do now to answer your second question, what I started to do was I call it having conversations with myself. I would take a piece of paper and a pencil, and I would write down exactly how I was feeling because I started to realize, you know, this just just didn't seem to make a lot of sense, you know, this anxiety, this stress that I was feeling. And I would read it and then look at it, and I call the the hard light of day and say to myself, you know, this doesn't, you know, why are you reacting so? Think about what were the things that others saw in you that gave them the feeling that you could do this new job. And I would write those things down because that was the external validation that I had to start to internalize. I had to be able to get there, to to look at the evidence that probably got me to that point and then start to say, yes, you do have this. Yes, you have done this. So that that started to allow me to start to internally validate myself. 
and start to gain um, a comfort level with what I had achieved, the experiences I had, and therefore start to feel more comfortable about being able to now meet the needs of these new positions. So it was that first and I talk about it in the book, this idea of not staying silent. I began to not be silent by having that conversation myself, but I also recommend if you've got a trusted friend, a coach, a mentor, you know, be honest, someone you can be honest with who will hold your confidence, though, and express how you're feeling, and then start to talk about and help them help you be able to get that evidence of why you should feel comfortable as you're moving into this new role. Yeah, that was my next question. You answered it before I asked you because conversations with yourself are very important, but then conversations with, as you say, a trusted friend. But would you suggest a trusted a colleague, or do you get involved with that because you're competing? I mean, oh. you are in very high-powered positions. You're in this big company. Is it a good idea to trust somebody else even if well and and it was funny i had a young woman at an event ask me she says well if you said to your boss i'm having these kinds of feelings aren't that going to question whether or not you really can do it i said that's not who i'm talking about when i say a trusted friend i mean that it's either a coach a mentor or someone who you know and that's why i said who you know you can trust they will hold your confidence and so therefore you can be honest with them So it's that person that I'm talking about, not somebody that you think may take this information and somehow utilize it. No, it's someone who you know is has your back in a sense, who's who is concerned and 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 their their role basically that they see is to support you. And so that's the kind of person. And then start to to build this evidence of, because we all can see very clearly our flaws, it's hard for us to see the things that are the good things, the positives that we have. So creating that inventory of what you have, you know, in terms of your own abilities. Um, Look at the people you're comparing yourself to because when we are doing this, often it's in relationship to that other group. Well, no one's perfect. You know, they may have strengths, but they also have their own lack or their own weakness or their own thing that they've got to work on. So look at people as humans because we're human. All of us are human and none of us are perfect. So that's another well, thing is being realistic. Are, I want to ask you this then, Joyce, if, because this does happen, uh, you, know, you, you, acknowledge all, you acknowledge your strengths in your own conversations or you get mm-hmm. someone, a trusted person or a coach. But what happens when you, and we all do, you're in your work situation and you do make a mistake. And so it just hmm. kind of like, uh, oh, this is what I knew was going to happen. Yeah. And you kind of regress back to, I knew I couldn't <laughs> handle this job in the first place. How do you, cause, how do you handle that? Well, you know, this to some degree is you have to understand whether your environment you're in is one that is accepting of mistakes. And if you are in an environment that a mistake is seen as a learning that, you know, they, the, the company or the organization is encouraging you to look beyond kind of the safe boundaries, to stretch those boundaries, 
well, then you may have that first initial reaction, but then it should be, again, if you start to this internal validation and you can look at, okay, that was a mistake, but what about this mistake have I learned? What kinds of things do I know in order to, moving down this path, I know to be, that, that I need to work harder on or that I need to do differently. So this is where I, I also talk about, in terms of the imposter syndrome, is understanding your environment because sometimes it's not just you. It's the environment that is stimulating this self-doubt. It's an environment that, that maybe risk uh, or, or making a mistake are not seen as learning or ways of pushing us into new territory but are career killers. So you've got to be in an environment where, in fact, if you're in an environment where it supports that idea, then you have to do the same thing. You're going to, you know, it's almost like taking that deep breath and said, okay, now let me look at this. What did I do? What did I learn from it? How could I do it differently? And what corrective actions can I take? Can you so, give us an example of you? I mean, because now you've, I'm assuming you've gone beyond this. Yes. Um, like an example in your career at either one of the, the, the um corporations that you worked at, Girls mm-hmm. Inc., Avon, that that happened to you personally and how you handled it, an incident. Sure. I'm going to try and do it in a fast because I know we don't have a lot of time, but I, this is when I was, I was an officer at Avon. Um, I, had not, I, was, I think it was in my first year as an officer, and I had a major new product that I was launching, a child's product, a gift product, and uh, it was being produced by an outside vendor. And and we were getting production samples of it, and the product looked great. But then at the at the eleventh hour, we the last few items, we got a call from the vendor that said that their subcontractor they had had an argument with, and the subcontractor was taking the formulation, and they were having failures on the product, and we were two weeks out of launch, and the product was scheduled was forecasted to to generate more than a million units. Uh, in terms of its first couple of weeks of, of sales. So it was like, oh, my goodness, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I, I could have kind of tried to get back in that shell, but I knew that I had to take action. So I, what I did is I geared up support systems, you know, our research people, our production people, myself, and some of my staff, and we went into that plant, and we worked that weekend to get us back to a place where, in fact, we could correct that and get back into it. I said to my, my it was then the president of, of, the, of the U.S., that I told him the situation, and I said, I may have to call you on Sunday night to say that we've got to take this off sale because we can't correct this issue. And his, his comment, again, this is where the environment, um, he says, okay, well, let's see what you can do. On Mon- by Sunday night, we were in production, and on Monday morning, when uh, I saw him, he said, you know, Joyce, it, when you make a mistake, if you learn from it, then, in fact, then that's the most important thing. And that gave me, again, the environment, therefore, I knew that I had to go into action because I couldn't sit back and just let this happen to me because it really would have been a, fail, a major failure. 
Um, but at the same time, because he gave me that cover, it gave me license to validate myself and then do what I talked to you about, which is to understand what decision points did I make? How could I have done this differently? And I realized I had let that external vendor get too far away from me before I, before I was doing the checks I needed to do. So it was a different reaction. I had learned at that point then how to calm these as opposed to having, you know, in a sense to almost be uh, paralyzed. I knew that I had to go. And that's one of the things in the imposter syndrome. You're always driven to do. So the idea of not taking action would not have kept me um, away from it, but it would have been such internal churn, which was going on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it allowed me to be able to do what I needed to do. And that external, you know, the environment allowed me to know that I had made the right decisions. And therefore, the, again, the, the, that's all a part of building this internal validation. Yeah. That's a great example of both you uh, taking off you as an individual being able to take control, but also being in an environment, that kind of a corporation that supported you. So it wasn't uh, uh, what you described as a career killer. Yeah. I, I would imagine that that was an important lesson as well, right, that you were in the right place? Absolutely. And I say to people that you've got to understand your imposter. What are the... where? Where does it get triggered? Is it in a certain meeting? Is it in, in a cert, on a certain project? Or is it the environment? You know, do you always kind of walk around feeling like everything I do that I don't have, if I, if I have a hiccup, then it's going to be a major one. Then if that's the instance and separating that from just kind of a knee-jerk reaction, that maybe you need to, the best thing for you to do is to make a change. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, we have a couple more minutes, so I want to. EmpressHasNoClothes.com is the website we can go to. Um, any other websites uh, that we should be aware well, of? That EmpressHasNoClothes.com gives you a lot more information about me and the book. Uh, my my publisher Barrett Kohler has a lot of information, so it's Barrett Kohler all one word. dot com uh, also has information about the Empress has no clothes, and then of course it's available on Amazon. dot com and BarnesandNoble. dot com. Yeah, and I want everybody to know that you know we've just covered we've touched on a few things that are in the book, but there's a lot more because um, Joyce covers. Well, you, you say there are seven ways to conquer the imposter syndrome. So we've just touched on a couple of them, so I'm encouraging people to get by the book. Um, Joyce Roche, who is one of America's leading African-American businesswomen, woman, and uh, this is her book about the imposter syndrome and how successful people, including herself, have learned how to manage it and learn from it. Um, great talk. I learned a lot today from you, I have to say. <laughs> and it's very practical advice, which is important, obviously. You know, it's not uh, stuff that you can't really, um, really put into practice. You can put it into practice. So thanks for sharing all of it. Thank you, Catherine. Yes, it's real, it's real life situations and my experiences and those of a number of other people that I talk to. Uh, who've experienced this. So hopefully uh, this will be a, a great guide for people who are dealing with the imposter syndrome. Thanks, Joyce Roche, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. 
You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.